Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Deal with these psychopaths online. Oh, Lord. Bill Fetter. Hello, Bill. It is uh, James Lowe with KJ Radio. How are you today, my friend? Oh, great to be with you. Uh, we have got a great guest with us today. He joins us live here in our broadcast. And uh, I'll tell you, my friend, there there is a heck of a lot going on uh, out there in our world. Uh, by the way, if you want to uh, find out what we're up to, go to JiggyJaguar.com. That's J-I-G-G-Y-J-A-G-U-A-R.com. And uh, now... We're going to get Dan Perkins and our good friend IQ Rizzoli, uh, part of the conversation here, and uh, we'll be making contact with them here on Skype. And uh, get a hold of us online, JiggyJaguar.us. You can stream the show live, 24-7 replay, exclusive news, and programming information all available on our fantastic, fantastic app. And um, the 4th of July is uh, right around the corner, and uh, we have got a great guest with us today here on our broadcast William J. Federer. He is a best-selling author and nationally known speaker. Freedom in America did not come easily, and it didn't come without great sacrifice. And uh, founders, pilgrim sacrifices for freedom. And uh, so, tell us a little bit about your your uh, your latest project, my friend. Well, uh, there's a book called "Who Is the King in America," and I go through all the world's history from the beginning of the invention of writing. Sumerian cuneiform on clay tablets in the Mesopotamian Valley around 3000 BC. And from the beginning of the invention of writing, uh, the most common form of government is what? Uh, it's kings. Yes. Nimrod, power of battle, Egyptian pharaohs, Cyrus of Persia, Darius, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Attila the Hunt. And as the kingdoms go on, uh, and the centuries go on, the kingdoms get bigger because with military advancements, you can kill more people. The phalanx, the stirrup, the gunpowder, the iron was stronger than bronze. Good afternoon, Dan. Yes, yes. Dan has just joined us. Go ahead, William. Keep talking, my friend. Well, And then by the time you get to the founding era of America, the king of England was the most powerful king on the planet. He controlled 13 million square miles and half a billion people. He was a globalist. He controlled all of India, a quarter of the world's population right there, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, British Guyana, Canada, and America. And America's founders decided we did not like this globalist king telling us what to do. And so they flipped it and made the people the king. And so a republic is where the people are king, ruling through representatives. Uh, A democracy is where the people are king, ruling directly, and it only ever worked on a pure level on a citywide basis where everyone in the city would gather every day at the market to talk politics. And if you didn't show up for a couple of days, you're called an idiotist. So it could never grow larger than a city-state because you could make it into the city every day. A republic could grow larger because you could take care of your family and your farm, and you have someone in your place that goes to the market every day and talks politics. They are your representative. So the REP in republic is the same REP in representative. So a Republican form of government is a representative. But the people are the king ruling through representatives. So we pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic. We're basically pledging allegiance to us being in charge of ourselves. And so when somebody protests the flag, what they're saying is, I don't want to be the king anymore. I protest this system where I participate in ruling the country. Like, okay, somebody else will dictate what happens to your life if you don't want to participate. But um, it's the word difference between the word subject and citizen. Kings have subjects who are subjected to their will. The word citizen is Greek. It means a co-ruler, a co-regent, a co-king. We're all citizens. We're all co-kings. And we got these servants that are carrying out our will called representatives. And we vote them in. Yes. Vote them out. Yes. And so, 
Well, we've got a uh, great guest with us today. He joins us live here on our broadcast. He is a fantastic, fantastic guest. He is the author of 20 books, speaking in over 100 cities a year, William J. Federer. He's a best-selling author and nationally known speaker. You've seen him featured on television, radio, and print, including Fox. He's been on Hannity and Combs, The O'Reilly Factor, C-SPAN, New York Times, as well as many others. Check out his website, AmericanMinute.com. That's AmericanMinute.com. And uh, whether this America's heritage, current events, or more, William J. Federer offers a wealth of information and vast knowledge on such issues combined. With his bold, informative answers and dynamic speaking abilities, make him an excellent, excellent guest, and we're happy to have him today here on our Pink Program. Now, um, tell us about your latest book, William. Uh, well, it's The Treacherous World of the 16th Century and How the Pilgrims Escaped It. Um, you know, so it goes through, why did the pilgrims come across in the first place? Uh, all of Europe was ruled by kings, uh, king of France, king of Spain, king of England, and Muslim sultans, and uh, Persian shahs, and Indian maharajas, and Chinese emperors, and African chieftains. The whole world was ruled by these kings. And I go through how the dynamics, what happened. Um, the Muslims surrounded Vienna, Austria in 1529, 100,000 of them under Suleiman the Magnificent. And the Reformation had just started. And the most powerful guy in Europe is the king of Spain, Charles V of Spain. He's the Holy Roman Emperor. And he's trying to stop the Muslim invasion, but this reformation is splitting up the country, and he's distracted. So he finally makes a deal with the Protestants. It's called the Peace of Augsburg of 1555. It's the first treaty ever to recognize Protestants. And it has this little Latin phrase that had enormous repercussions, even influencing us today. What was this phrase? Tuius regio, eus religio, which means whose is the reign, his is the religion. So this let every king decide what's going to be believed in his kingdom. Let's just work together against these Muslims who are invading Europe. And so uh, it worked. They finally stopped the Islamic invasion. But within the next century, uh, different kings believed different things. And Europe uh, had all these different kingdoms. And if you didn't believe the way the king did, it was considered treason, and they were chased from one to another. Finally, they spilled over and founded colonies in America. And so every colony was started by a different denomination. Virginia was Anglican. Massachusetts was Puritan. Rhode Island was Baptist. New York was Dutch Reformed. Delaware and New Jersey were Swedish Lutheran. Maryland was Catholic, Pennsylvania Quaker. And they did not get along. And like Europe, they would chase each other out of each other's colonies, tar and feather each other. But then the revolution started, and they all had to work together against the King of England, sort of like the way the Catholics and the Protestants had to work together against the Ottoman Turks who were invading Europe. Well, we've got a uh, great guest with us today. Now, IQ, uh, sitting here and listening to all this, uh, you're a student of history, my friend. Do you have any questions for, uh, for William? First of all, I'm going to comp compliment him. Amazing, absolutely amazing few minutes of talk already. Uh, I love what he's talking about. I love the subjects he's talking about. Yes, Islam was a threat for the last 1400 years, not only now, as he knows very well. But now the threat from Islam is even worse. What I would like to know is what he thinks we should do. William, what, 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 do you, what do you make of Islam, my friend, and uh, some of the different things uh, going on concerning that and the threat that it poses? Well, uh, it's important to look at Muhammad's life because he's the perfect Muslim. And we get some insights into what's happening today by looking back at his life. So he was a religious leader for 12 years in the pagan city of Mecca. And he, from 610 A.D. to 622 A.D. And he only makes 70 converts in 12 years. And he begins to get frustrated and confrontational. And so uh, the people of Mecca decide that he is a disturber of the peace. And they chase Muhammad out of town in the year 622 A.D. He has nowhere to go. He is, in a sense, a Muslim refugee. And he goes north 210 miles to a Jewish city called Medina. The Jews are nice and tolerant, and they let Muhammad in as a Muslim immigrant. He goes into the minority neighborhoods in Medina, and he finds people who have grievances against the Jewish government, and he begins to organize them into a following. We're familiar with the term of organizing in the community. 
And when his following gets big enough, he goes to the Jews and pressures them to accommodate him and his followers politically. The Jews do make a treaty. Now Muhammad is a political leader in addition to being a religious leader. Then Muhammad's followers, back in Mecca, they get confrontational. They get chased out of town for disturbing the peace. They are Muslim refugees. They go to Medina. The Jews are nice and let them in as Muslim immigrants. And Muhammad allows his followers to rob the caravans headed to Mecca in retaliation for the Meccans chasing them out of town. So where Jesus said, if they take your coat, give them your shirt, his attitude was, if they take your house, you retaliate, take their caravan. And so Muhammad has 300 warriors, and they rob the caravans headed to Mecca. He gets a whole chapter of the Quran. It's Surah 8, Chapter 8, titled Spoils of War. He gets a whole chapter of the Quran on how to distribute booty from robbing the caravans. One of the verses, 3350, says, Allah has given you the slave girls as your booty. And so... As Muhammad and his men are robbing the caravans headed to Mecca, the Meccans decide they've got to stop this, so they send a thousand soldiers to escort their caravan. And Muhammad, with 300 warriors, defeats a thousand at the Battle of Badra in 624 AD. He was outnumbered three to one, and he wins. This great victory convinces Muhammad to be a military leader, and he fights in 66 battles and raids in the next eight years before he dies. And uh, then, after he dies, the rightly guided caliphs conquer all of Yemen, which used to be a Jewish kingdom. They conquer all of Egypt, which had been Coptic Christian for six centuries, evangelized by Mark, that wrote the Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then the, the rightly guided caliphs conquer Syria, which had been completely Christian for six centuries, evangelized by the Apostle Paul. The name Christian was first used in Syria until Caliph Umar conquered it. And then there used to be 250 Catholic dioceses along North Africa in the 7th century. Morocco, Algiers, Tunisia, Libya, there was Christian. St. Augustine of Hippo was from Carthage, today that's Tunisia. And then finally, in the year 711, 80,000 Muslims invade Spain, and they're on horseback with stirrups and scimitar swords, and in 10 years they conquer all of Spain, because they're still fighting on foot with heavy metal swords. They cross the Pyrenees, conquer southern France, and they're finally stopped outside of Paris at the Battle of Tours in 732 A.D. by Charles Martel, the grandfather of Charlemagne, which was exactly 100 years after the death of Mohammed in 632 A.D. They go from Arabia to Paris in a 100-year military campaign. And since this is the first century of Islam, there are some that look to that as their example the way Christians looked in the first century of Christianity is their example. And uh, so here, the, the Muhammad and the rightly guided caliphs transition from being religious to political to military. And so there will forever be this pull for uh, devout Muslims to want to follow that example. Now, thankfully, lots of Muslims over the centuries have sort of gotten away from that example and developed traditions that are not in, in line with that. But in Islam, they have a concept. When your enemy is strong, retreat. When your enemy is weak, attack. And so when the non-Muslim world would show itself strong, it would sort of, sort of go... Uh, in, into remission, so to speak. And they would go for a generation or two that was less violent. But then when the non-Muslim world shows itself weak, they would do a couple probing attacks, and if there's no response, they would mobilize, and uh, they would begin to become aggressive again. And so that's why it's a dilemma today, because we're sending them mixed signals. We're saying we're really strong, but we're acting as if we're defeated. So whenever Muslims would conquer a people, the people they conquer are forbidden to insult them. So when they come over here, and we are really, really careful not to insult them, we're posturing ourselves as having been conquered. When Muslims conquer a people, the non-Muslim minorities have to pay the taxes. Muslims don't pay the taxes. The non-Muslims pay the taxes. And so they come over here, and we're giving them free Section 8 housing, free food, free clothes, free health care, free of this and that. We're refusing to close the borders. We're just letting them. They say, well, the the infidels in America are acting the exact same way as the conquered uh, infidels in, in the Muslim countries. So we're, we're giving, we're telling them that we're in charge, but we're acting as if we're submitting. And so when your enemy is strong, retreat. When your enemy is weak, attack. 
we're sending them the signal that we're weak and that's mobilizing the fundamental ones to become aggressive. Does that make sense? Dan, jump in there, my friend, or IQ, uh, give us some thoughts. James, for years I've been telling you this. For years I've been telling you the same. By the way, he gave you a history of, in 100 years, the Arabs conquered the biggest empire in history. Hello? Yes. Yes, I agree, my friend. Yeah. The threat is that we are not showing them who they are. They are telling us who they are. Every imam tells in every single mosque on earth. He incites the people who are in the mosque to hate the very people they live amongst. Whether they are in France, Europe, or America, it's the same. I've always said that. But people in America and Europe, they don't want to listen to this, although it's a fact. The reality is simple. Every single Muslim is a mortal and eternal enemy of every single human being who is a Muslim. For one simple reason, Muhammad is the perfect example, as the professor already said. He is the perfect example. They're following the perfect example. What was the perfect example? A mass murderer, a child molester and rapist, a plunderer. Chapter 8, as the gentleman said, a whole chapter is how to split the booty. By the way, 20% of the booty is called al-khums, which is 20% in Arabic, goes to Muhammad and Allah. But since Allah doesn't collect, Muhammad collected all 20% of all the booty. Back to you. Well, uh, and, and yes, and jump in there. The women too. So many, many sultans had a thousand lions. Yes, Dan, jump in there, Dan. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm I'm curious, I'm fascinated by your guest and his command of history. Um, I wish my command was as as strong as his in in IQs, but I want to ask the question. You, You make a distinction between the enemy being weak and strong. And, and I would say, if I look at, if I look at Europe and I look at the United States, would you agree that they're, at this moment in time, they are weak and therefore the Muslims are strong? Right. So if you're afraid of a dog and run away from it, what's it going to do? Chase you. If you turn and show strength, it'll stop and tuck tail and go away. It's the law of nature applied ideologically. And so when they sense the non-Muslim world being weak, it's a very energizing, it's a a very enthusing for them. Uh, Mohammed said how the non-Muslims and all their possessions and their wives and their families are your inheritance. And um, so, so they view it and, uh, but again, uh, if you look at the two cities Muhammad lived in, that's the key. And that's what the Muslim Brotherhood follows. The first stage, Muhammad comes into Medina as a religious refugee. And so that's the first stage the Muslim Brotherhood does. It's come into countries as, as a religious refugee, as an immigrant. And then you build a power base. You, you do this organizing. And so they're doing that in the prison systems. Uh, and then when they get out of prison, they, they track them. And then they build communities in these inner cities. And, uh, but, um, and then when the signal's given is you overthrow the government, like an Arab Spring. And, uh, but again, there's 1,400-year history of this. Now, whenever they've suffered major defeats, uh, they would go into remission for a generation or two after the Battle of Ponto, Battle of Tours, Battle of Vienna. But after World War I, the Ottoman Empire, which had existed for seven, eight hundred years, it's disbanded. And like after World War I, they took up a knife and carved up Europe into different countries, changed the borders and so forth. They did that in the Middle East after World War I. 
And France took Syria and Lebanon, and Britain took Palestine, Iraq, Egypt, and Russia takes a little sliver, and, um, you know, Italy t- wants to take a little bit of, uh, you know, Ethiopia, and, and the Armenians and the Greeks want to take a little bit left of Turkey. And so they're all trying to divide it all up. And, um, and so the Ottoman Empire is gone. And so what happens is you have emerged leaders of, in the Muslim world who want to be more secular. And so you had Ataturk in Turkey, and he uh, ran the country from 1924 to 1938, and he outlawed the Fezes, outlawed the Burkas, changed the weekend from Friday to Saturday and Sunday to fit in with Western Europe, first one to educate women. Uh, he said Mohammedism was nothing more than arid politics. He says it may have suited tribes in the desert. It is no good for a modern progressive state. He said he is a weak ruler who needs religion to uphold his government. So Ataturk tried to secularize the government in Turkey. And then you have the Shah in Iran. Um, The CIA did the Peacock uh, operation. We sort of threw out the leader of Iran, and we installed the Shah. And so the Shah loved America because we basically gave him his country, and so he was really loyal. Uh, And then you had um, al-Hashimi was the Sharif of Mecca. And so uh, he was one of the guys that Lawrence of Arabia helped to organize to help fight the Turks. And so the British take one of al-Hashimi's sons and they make him the king of Iraq, named Fazl. They take another one of al-Hashimi's sons and they make him the king of Jordan, Abdullah. And so they sort of like the British because the British are the ones who got rid of the Ottoman Empire with the help of America, and the British under Winston Churchill installed them as the leaders of their countries. So here you had leaders of the Muslim countries that were looked favorably upon the West. They would dress in Western business suits. They would get rid of the fezes and the burqas and the beards. Uh, you had Nasser in Egypt, Gamal Nasser, and he said uh, to the head of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, he said, do you want me to put a tarha, a veil on all the women in, in Egypt? He says, you have a daughter in the school of medicine. She's not wearing a tarha veil. How can you, you can't even make one woman do it. You want me to put a veil on 11 million? He says, religion is something that people make their own rules up in their own homes. And so this was what was going on in the world until two things happened. Standard Oil Company discovers oil in Saudi Arabia, and... Um, and what happened in Arabia was that Sharif of Mecca, whose two sons were the King Fazl and King Abdullah of Jordan and Iraq, um, al-Hashimi in Mecca gets, gets uh, defeated by the Saud family. And the Saud family had teamed up with the Wahhabis, and they were this violent religious heresy of chopping off arms and legs. It was uh, Lawrence of Arabia, the British lieutenant who organized the Arabs, he called Wahhabism an Islamic heresy, is puritanical, you know, and um, and so the Wahhabis, this violent sect of Islam, conquers with the Saud family, conquers Mecca in 1924, and this makes it so the Muslims from around the world going on their Hajj, their pilgrimage, they go to Mecca, they get infected with this Wahhabi version of this violent Islam, they go back, but then in 1938, oil is discovered in Saudi Arabia goes from the poorest Muslim country to the richest Muslim country. They go from mountains to useless sand dunes to the wealthiest nation, and what do they do with their money? They become a magnet for fundamentalism, spreading this Wahhabi version of Islam, building mosques, buying Western politicians, funding terrorist groups. <laughs> and, uh, and so the, the other countries, uh, these secular leaders that we were all propping up, that were friends with the West, they got these these violent Wahhabi uh, groups rising up, and they're cracking down on them. And then what happens is we have Jimmy Carter abandon the Shah. We have Ronald Reagan. I loved him, but when the Muslims blew up a Marine barracks in Lebanon, he pulled all the Americans out. And then you got President Obama firing Mubarak, our ally in Egypt. And so the Muslim world views, right, when you're strong, when your enemy is strong, retreat, but when your enemy is weak, attack. So here, we, this America, we're abandoning all our allies, we're showing weakness, and this is mobilizing and encouraging the violent ones to, to get into the aggressive mode. But I wanted to, I wanted to ask, given um, last probably three, four months, maybe longer, we're seeing a dramatic shift to the right in many of the European nations. That people are are fed up with the uh, the migration, 
the um, the German people are upset with 700,000 Muslims who are who are doing nothing but feeding at the trough and, and are not productive and are not making no efforts to assimilate into the culture. So has the tide turned, at least in Europe? Well, um, I tell people um, multiculturalism, pluralism, diversity uh, is the AIDS virus of Western civilization. What do I mean? Uh, you have a healthy body, and if a virus comes in, your immune system mobilizes and attacks it. But if you have AIDS, uh, your immune system does not recognize the threat, and it allows it to grow and eventually kill you. And so if you have a group that comes into your, your community and says, we're going to have polygamy, we're going to have six-year-old brides, we're going to do female genital mutilation, we're going to beat our wives, you're going to have a bunch of guys going up to the, you know, their house and say, not in our community, you're not, and they'll chase them out. But if you have AIDS, multiculturalism, this pluralism, diversity, you can, no, no, you have to let them do that. It's their culture. But look what they're doing to the women, little girls. No, 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 it's their culture. You have to let them do it. But, but no, no, it's their culture. Like, well, okay. And they're allowed to stay and grow and take over the neighborhood and take over a couple of couple neighborhoods until you're like Paris with 751 neighborhoods surrounding Paris taken over by, you know, millions of, of these immigrants. And um, they actually put up signs that say, enter at your own risk. It says Z-U-S, Zonas Urbanas Sensibles, Sensitive Urban Zones, which basically means if you go in there and you're raped, there's going to be no witnesses because no Muslim is going to testify against another Muslim on behalf of a Kafir infidel. Again, the majority, Islam is a peer pressure religion. It's not an individual religion. It's a group religion. It's an ulma. It's a community. And so the imam sets the, the group uh, public opinion, so to speak, and the majority of them are content to live Western and peaceful, but when the, the, the fundamental imams see the West being weak, they begin to mobilize their, their mosques and begin to move them and make it um, socially unacceptable to be friends with the West, uh, and then they, they gradually, step by step, moving them into a fundamental direction of following Muhammad's example. But if the West would show itself strong, the large group of them they, they they're happy to live in the Western values and so forth. So so it actually helps them for us for the us to show very strong that we're against the, the violent ones. IQ would would say to you that there are no moderate Muslims in the world. They're either Muslims or they're not. Would you would you agree with my friend or disagree with him? Um, well, there's a whole lot of people that are, like, raised in Turkey under Ataturk, and he was a secular leader, and so they grew up, their whole experience has been a secular one. Now, they call themselves Muslim because they're more cultural uh, Muslims. Um, uh, they're not eating and drinking and breathing. In many cultures, you can't even read the Quran. I mean, the, the, the Ayatollah in Iran insists that the Quran be in Arabic, the you know language that Allah gave it. The people in Iran speak Farsi. They don't even speak the language uh, that's in the Quran. They can't, even, and so they basically just sort of do whatever the Imam says. Okay, this is the new rules. This is what you got to follow. And so it's more of a, a cultural thing. Most women uh, in Muslim countries don't study the Quran, and uh, many countries they're not even allowed to go to the mosque. And so it's a male thing, and so they basically learn the rules that they have to follow in order not to get raped on the street. And so um, Islam, at its core, is a list of do's and don'ts. It's halals and harams, what's permitted, what's not permitted, and a local imam keeps the list. I talked to one gentleman, his Christian name is Mark Christian, but he previously was a doctor and an imam in Egypt. And uh, he said yeah, he wanted to be a really, really good imam because his dad was an imam, and uh, he wanted to study why. Why is this haram forbidden? Why is this halal permitted? And he would find out a lot of the sort of arbitrary things. And he would question it. And in Islam, if you're questioning it, you're doubting it. If you're doubting it, it was, it was delegitimizing the father. And they were like, you know, you, if, you're, if a dad can't even have his own son obey without questioning. How, and so the dad had tried to kill him a couple times and he fled to America. And he changed his name to Mark Christian. And um, so, so in Islam, they don't even 
teach you the whys of the do's and don'ts. They just teach you the do's and don'ts. It's just a long list of what's halal permitted, what's not permitted. And so the, the average Muslim doesn't really know his faith. He just knows the rules to follow. And, um, and the imam, uh, it, when the, uh, I know I'm going on a couple rabbit trails, but, uh, the Dutch took over Indonesia and they had some, uh, people going on pilgrimage to Mecca and running in, they call them Padri. They ran into some Wahhabis and they started bringing back this violent Wahhabis to, to Indonesia and they were organizing riots. And so the Dutch who took over Indonesia arrested the fundamental imams. And another email would begin to be fundamental. They'd arrest him. Another one fundamental, they'd arrest him pretty soon. The email says, you know what? We're just going to not talk about overthrowing the Dutch government. And, it, it developed two centuries, or th- almost three centuries, in Indonesia of them having a type of Islam with not the fundamentalist aspect to it. And, um, and so the, 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 a way to get around this is you need to get back to the way it was pre-Obama when the FBI and CIA would send people into the mosques, listen to their sermons, and if they were inciting violence, you, you, you arrest the leader. Now, as far as doctrinally goes, yes, as, as long as Muhammad is the perfect Muslim, you're always going to have this sort of like you get chicken pox that goes into remission, you know, but you're 60 years old, you get worn down, and it comes back as the shingles. You know, it's, it's in the DNA of, of Islam of following Muhammad's example and, you know, short of getting them to, to uh, not follow Muhammad anymore and convert away from it. The next step is to, uh, to, to say, well, we're going to target any of these fundamental imams. I know I've sort of gone on a bunch of different rabbit trails, but I'd love to hear IQ's uh, response. You are always on the right track, but you are not willing to commit yourself. I was born in Iraq. Uh, under Saddam and the previous government before that, they were secular. The constitution was made by the British government at the time. There were Jews, there were Christians, there were Baha'is, they were there. They all literally, they lived comfortably. The only time they couldn't live comfortably when the Imams were inciting the, in the mosque. You cannot, let me put it in a nutshell, it is impossible to be a good Muslim and a loyal citizen among non Muslims impossible and I dare any human being listening to prove me wrong with the sum of two hundred thousand dollars any takers well I'm well, not going to take that I, but I do want to ask no, no, I want to ask I agree with him. and he's he's lived under it so I tell people uh, who are wanting to bring in you know the, the immigrants I said talk to somebody who's lived in Iraq or lived in these countries in the Middle East and let them tell you what it's like to live underneath of a fundamentalist government um, rather than listening to you know these apologists for care and so forth in America. So, so I respect you very much, IQ, and I really, really appreciate uh, and agree with uh, your uh, views there. I'll tell you the truth. You are the first person I have heard on radio who knows as much about Islam as I do. And that's a compliment, I promise you. I'm saying a lot. I'm saying a lot. Thank you. Let me ask you, if I could, just ask a quick question. IQ and I have discussed, I've written about it, I believe IQ has written about it, about the revolution that's going on in in Iran where the common people are, um, and as you pointed out, they speak Farsi, the, the, the mullahs and the imams, uh, are, have, have the Koran and Arabic, so they can't even, people can't read it. But there seems to be a growing anger with the common people against the mullahs. And there are riots and protests. Uh, do you think that, uh, that there's a, a possibility of regime change in uh, Iran? I think there is, as long as America doesn't prop up the bad guys. <laughs> Uh, we have a terrible track record of uh, countries that wanted to throw off dictators, and we go in and support the dictator. And uh, President Obama gave billions of dollars uh, to the, the fundamentalist dictators over there. Um, and um, 
but if we if we kept our, our, our out of it, the the people would. Uh, I've met the Shaw, uh, the Shaw's son. I met the Shaw's son years ago, and I got had an opportunity to meet um, a number of the, the leaders and former generals and people like that. They they loved America. They were pro American, and um, uh, and they were like, you know, hey, if America can support us. Uh, we're, we're, we'll get rid of the Shah, and, and we never had any administration that would. Um, but um, it was Jimmy Carter that abandoned the Shah. He had a national security advisor named Zvigny Brzezinski, who thought uh, that um, if the you know his his idea was that the um, Russians were making a play for Iran, and better that Iran fall into the hands of the Ayatollah than into the hands of the Russians, and so. Um, you know, and so so Zvigny Brzezinski's daughter is uh, MSNBC uh, news host uh, Mika, but um, but that's what we have to thank for the Shaw. That America abandoned our ally, the Shaw. I'm sorry, the, we have Carter and Zvigny Brzezinski to thank for for the Ayatollah um, because we abandoned our American ally, the Shaw. But we think. Do you think? Sorry, sorry go on. Go ahead. I just wanted to ask one more thing, and then I'm yes, sorry. I, I'm curious as to what your, well, I'm curious, sir, what your feeling is about how the Muslim leaders react to Mr. Trump. Um, I think uh, they they respect him. I think his unpredictableness is uh, a strength that uh, they don't. They don't know what he's he's going to do next, and that's that that helps them to um, stand back. Um, I, I, I met Mike Flynn. Uh, even gave him a copy of my book, and he understood the Islamic threat. I was really concerned over um, a bunch of what I call Obama holdovers um, that were basically continuing um, the Obama, Hillary Clinton, John Kerry uh, agenda in the Middle East, and um, but I'm. I'm thinking that uh, Trump has, uh, at least to a fair extent, gotten rid of those uh, and or purged them, at least many of them, uh, and, and brought some sense back. Um, the one thing I was last week uh, speaking with General Jerry Boykin, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him or not, um, but yeah. he, uh, he's, the, he's the Black Hawk Down uh, general, and he was... Um, there were his men. It was his men that were drugged through the streets of Somalia, and um, and he uh, he was wounded. Um, I mean, he's the one who captured uh, Pablo Escobar, <laughs> the Colombian drug lord. Uh, so, General Jerry Boykin founded the Delta Force in the in the, the army. Anyway, he said that um, NATO at some point is going to have to throw out Erdogan because part of being involved in NATO is you have to be a uh, democratically republic uh, representative form of government, and um, Erdogan is turning Turkey from a representative form of government into a dictatorship. And so he says, at some point, NATO is going to have to face facts and and kick him out. And he says, when that happens, he's going to embrace the Muslim world, and um, uh, that Erdogan has gone to. Uh, now, this is what uh, he told me uh, had gone to uh, Mecca and went through the golden doors in the Kaaba and sat on Mohammed's chair. And, um, and then he said his goal is to go to Damascus and go through some uh, mosque where there's a tower that supposedly the, the Mahdi is going to go through, and, uh, and he's going to declare himself the Mahdi. And, but, but Erdogan is, has aspirations to be the caliph. And, uh, and the, the goal of fundamental Muslims is called the caliphate. It's a one-world government under one Muslim leader called the caliph. And Erdogan has expressed uh, in not-so-subtle terms that he wants to be the, the caliph. And so, uh, the, um, anyway, so, so it's looking like Iran and Turkey are going to be the two strong um, uh, forces and Iran's mostly Shiite, and Turkey's mostly Sunni. Um, but uh, if if uh, Erdogan declares himself the Mahdi, that the thought is that that might be a uniting factor between the two. I don't know. Uh, IQ would probably know better than than I do on that. 
One quick, first let me address something else you mentioned about the Shah. I, on several radio talk shows in America, I said the United States should, under Trump, either Trump himself or Vice President Pence, should meet with the son of the Shah, Riza Pahlavi. By meeting publicly, it will transmit a message to the people of Iran that the United States supports a government in exile. And this, without American interference physically, can help the leaders who are opposing the mullahs to overthrow the government. What do you think? Wow, that's excellent. That's excellent. I'm, I'm going to mention that to a couple of the people I know and see if, if there's an opportunity to make that happen. Regarding uh, Shia and Sunnis, if and when Erdogan declares himself the Mahdi, he will be the laughing stock because the Mahdi has got to be a descendant of the Imams and he is not an Imam, he's not Shia. So that is out. The problem is this. It's not only that we have Turkey and Iran. You have now Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, and even in alliance with Israel is a third component. What do you think? Yes, that, that is something that I uh, am trying to process. The new king of Saudi Arabia, uh, allowing women to drive, uh, sending out um, uh, olive branches of peace uh, with Israel. Uh, these are things that are very new on the uh, landscape. Um, I, I uh, do, uh, one of the things that's, don't mean to get off on another rabbit trail, but um, oil uh, is what uh, has brought the Middle East into world politics. Um, you had uh, 1800s oil came from Wales, whaling ships, Moby Dick and so forth. Wales were being chased to extinction until uh, 19, uh, or sorry, 1859, oil's discovered in Pennsylvania. And then in the 1880s, oil's discovered in Oklahoma. And then in 1908, oil is discovered in Baghdad. And so Winston Churchill moves the British Navy from using coal to oil, so now Britain wants oil. And Kaiser Wilhelm is industrializing Germany, and he wants oil, so he builds a railroad across Eastern Europe, across Turkey, over to Baghdad. And this is still the Ottoman Empire period of time, and so he makes a deal with Abdul Hamid II. Uh, they have a treaty. And, um, and so this pulls all the Middle East into World War I. And um, anyway, I go through uh, that whole history. But, uh, and then in 1938, oil is discovered in um, uh, Saudi Arabia by Standard Oil Company. John D. Rockefeller, the globalist, the son David Rockefeller, has the Trilateral Commission, Council on Foreign Relations. Their family donated the land that the United Nations is built on. So the, the, the Rockefellers are, are globalists, and they're working together with the Saudis. But... Um, the, the proposal that I read and IQ may know more than this, that the Saudis want to have a pipeline from Qatar, Qatar, across Saudi Arabia, across Syria, across Turkey into Europe. And this way, Saudi Arabia can supply oil and gas to Europe. The problem is Russia's number one export is oil and gas to Europe. So Russia doesn't want this. Syria is in league with Russia. And so this pipeline would have to go across Syrian land. And so part of what we're seeing over there might be a pipeline war. And, uh, and I'll pause and, and get comments on that. Well, you have oil and gas now, the offshore from Israel in the Mediterranean. And according to the latest figures, it's huge. And the Israelis have now made agreements with uh, Cypriot, Cyprus and with uh, Greece. So that's another component that you have more gas and more oil available. You know, what's happening, the control by OPEC as the only faucet for oil for the whole of the world is collapsing. Today, as far as I remember from recent figures, the United States is a net exporter of oil on the world scene. The United States is not dependent on anybody. And for as long as the United States is not dependent on anybody, her politics are not dependent on anybody. 
This is why Trump can literally rule the roost. What do you think? Yes, yes. Uh, um, the uh, For those not familiar, uh, oil is the number one commodity traded globally. And it's been traded in U.S. dollars. And they call it the petrodollar. Um, there's was one line of reasoning that Saddam Hussein was thinking of moving Iraq off of trading oil in the U.S. dollar, and that may have contributed to him being thrown out. Uh, I was talking to somebody recently who had been in Libya, and they said that the people of Libya loved Omar, Muammar Gaddafi. He gave them free gas almost, free energy, free education, free everything. They were living really, really well, so everybody loved Muammar Gaddafi, but he was gathering up a, up a bunch of gold, and he was considering moving Libya off of selling oil in the U.S. dollar to some other type of um, medium of exchange, and that may have contributed to his being ousted. Yeah, but it's uh, it would be naive of us to to see what's going on over there in the Middle East without thinking that the component of oil has you know it has something to do with what's going on over there. Dan, what do you think? Well, the issue I'm I, I'm doing a I'm doing a commentary right now, probably for. Uh, the Daily Caller, and I'm talking about what's happening to the oil business around the world. Um, we've got 50%, 57% of all the oil rigs drilling in the world are in North America. And uh, Saudi Arabia only has 118 rigs, and Canada has 186 rigs. The whole infrastructure of oil in the Middle East, which was the source of power, as you pointed out, when uh, when they discovered oil there, um, it is it has reached a point that the devastation over the last several years of the cost to lift oil out of the ground versus the revenue that it generates has operated at a negative for three years. And Saudi Arabia gave up almost a quarter of its total GNP in the loss of oil revenue. So there's a lot of really nasty things going on in the Middle East that weren't there when oil was king. And I'm wondering if that's also causing a dislocation. I think you're correct. I, um, uh, I, I think that, uh, again, I haven't totally processed what's going on uh, with uh, Saudi Arabia and the new king. Uh, there's parts of it that, in a sense, look good. Um, there's other parts that, don't know if what's happening now is just a step toward a, a second, uh, another part. Um, uh, I was with Joel Richardson. Uh, he's a, an author who writes about what's going on over there. Um, he's concerned that Iran is not trying to make a sort of a crescent move all across Central Asia and um, sort of um, attack Israel from the north and how he was friends with a bunch of people from Kurdistan and the Kirkuk, and it was like they were like totally shocked that America abandoned the Kurds and let Iran take over the Kirkuk oil fields, which is one of the richest oil fields in the world. And so here America let, we stood back, well, we don't want to get involved, but we, we let Iran take over, uh, the, the, the Kirkuk and the, the Kurdistan oil fields. Um, and so Iran has a, under the Ayatollah has this aggressive move. Um, if there's, if they can, uh, have a regime change over there, then obviously that will be put on hold. Um, but um, but I am, and I'm really really concerned about about Erdogan in Turkey, and because um, he he's uh, I know some people uh, from Turkey, and they're like um, shocked at how he's trying to fundamentalize the country, and they don't want it. Even one of my an Uber driver, a lady. I was driving Uber, and I said, uh, what are you doing? Oh, I'm a nurse. You're going to go back to Turkey after you graduate because he's from Turkey. She goes, no, uh, Erdogan would arrest me. Um, he's arresting people that, that he, you know, closing down entire schools and arresting all the professors and replacing 6,000 policemen in Izmir and the old Ephesus and areas where um, that has had a resistance toward him. He's like... Um, uh, 
really trying to fundamentalize the country. And, um, uh, to me, that's, um, that's something to really be concerned about. Do you think that, that Iran with the, with the turmoil and the various groups of people within Iran, uh, and the resources being spent on their nuclear program, uh, if the, if the imams, uh, one, one of the challenges that we always have as a nation, and it was never so prevalent as it would happen in, in, in Libya when Hillary Clinton wanted to get rid of Muammar Gaddafi. She had no clue who was coming in after him. Uh, do we have a sense if the imams are gone, who's going to rule? Is it going to be the son of the Shah, or is it some other group? I'm, I'm not educated on that. I, I do know that Historically, um, whenever you take over a country that's run by a dictator, you simply put your person in at the top. Uh, even the Bible would have um, the king of Egypt would capture Jerusalem and get rid of the king, and he'd, he'd take uh, the king's brother and make him the king. It's this idea that you when you just replace in a top-down form of government, you just replace the top. But what we did when we went into Iraq is we we got rid of the entire infrastructure and we like t- totally scrapped it and just created chaos. And then we're going to build from scratch uh, a, a structured government. And it's like no one with any sense uh, historically would do that. So um, but IQ probably has firsthand uh, knowledge on what happened there. You're absolutely right, but the mistake was really what happened. They removed all the military of Iraq. They dismissed all the soldiers, 400,000. This was never, it never happened before in America's history. When they conquered Germany, they allowed German troops to continue. When they conquered Japan, they allowed Japanese troops to continue to stabilize the nation. But they, in Iraq, they made the biggest mistake. They dismissed 400,000 soldiers. How do they earn a living? These people were earning a living. All of a sudden, they have nothing. This is how ISIS came about. One single mistake. But that's exactly what happened. But we're talking, when we talk about Islam, what do we do with the Muslims in Europe? I honestly believe that in the short term, very short term, three to five years, we shall have civil war in Europe between the indigenous people and Islam. Because Muslims cannot ever assimilate or integrate in any nation which is not Islamic. They are prohibited. As you know, the Quran prohibits them. As you also know, you just mentioned it a few minutes ago. They are prohibited from questioning the Quran. What do you think? Yeah, I'm very concerned. Uh, last year, there were 900 acid attacks in London. Uh, they closed down 500 churches and opened 400 mosques. Uh, now the churches were empty because they had embraced, uh, you know, the gay agenda, and uh, you know, just a couple people were in these liberal churches and across the street were these mosques that are packed out. Um, but uh, there is a change happening. Uh, Europeans are having you know, maybe one kid per family. And, and, and um, what, from what I've read, in Muslim circles, it's a social stigma for a, a woman to have less than five kids. And a guy who's a faithful Muslim can have multiple wives, you know, four of them or more. And, um, and so what they're doing is going to these Western countries and setting up a wife in an apartment and another wife in another apartment, another wife in another apartment. And these wives go down to the welfare office and say, the husband's not around, and they get these nice checks. The guy visits the wives. The more kids they have, the larger the checks get. And the guy is living like a king. He doesn't have to work. He spends all his day. And they were interviewing one of these Muslims named Adoram Kajari. I know I'm not pronouncing that right, in London. And he founded Islam for UK. And they said, don't you feel bad that you're living off the generosity of the British people, yet your goal is to take over Britain? He said, no, Allah allows us to live off the infidel while we are subduing them. And so as long as Europe has this multiculturalism, pluralism, diversity, and they think all cultures are the same, 
they have a cultural aids, so to speak. They're incapable of identifying this threat. And um, whether or not enough people can wake up in time, I don't know. I do know that um, uh, their leadership, particularly, you know, Angela Merkel and so forth, uh, they seem to uh, want to intentionally um, uh, move their country. The, the globalist idea is nationalism is the enemy. After World War I, they came up with this idea that uh, the nation state of Germany was so terrible that we want to redraw lines for countries and create it so there's internal conflict. Like they created Yugoslavia that had Serbs and Croats and Bosnians, and, and they knew they wouldn't get along, but they thought, hey, they'll have so much division inside the country they can never mobilize and be a national threat. And so it was this idea that you want to begin to destroy the concept of nation-state. And so this is what these globalists have, have endeavored, and they thought uh, if you bring a whole lot of these immigrants in, they'll break up the, the unity of these countries, and then you'll eventually be able to bring about a one-world government. It will never happen. Islam so, is a disease. And unless you stop the disease, you have to cut your arm or you lose your life. Sorry, Dan, go ahead. That's all right. I was just going to point out that, that last week uh, I saw, and, and, and IQ brought it up, uh, the Austrian government was closing mosques and... Uh, exporting, uh, uh, what was it, uh, 12 or 20 imams? 60 imams. 60, 60 or 16? 6-0. 6-0. Okay. So here's, here's a small country that has a problem with uh, uh, too many mosques and too many imams and too much influence that appears, at least on the surface, to beginning to try and do something. Uh, I've not heard anything about a pushback from the Muslim population in Austria. And I'm curious as to what you think about what's going there. Will it spread to other parts of, of Europe? Yeah, it's interesting. When you look at the history, Eastern European countries suffered the brunt of the Ottoman-Turkish invasion. So Wallachia, Moldova, Bulgaria, Albania, Transylvania, Hungary, Poland, uh, Austria. The Muslims surrounded Vienna, Austria twice in 1529, then again in 1683. And so some of those countries still have it fresh in their memory of the Islamic threat. Western Europe, they were removed uh, from the threat by these intermediary kingdoms. And so they don't have that in their corporate memory as a people. And so uh, so some of these Eastern European countries, like you know Poland and Hungary and like Austria, uh, they uh, still have that uh, memory that we have to be concerned about the potential uh, or the, the threat of the, the fundamental Islam. Um, anyway, well, one little example I, I use... Uh, with computers, you have hardware and software. Um, and so you can have uh, a computer that's really good, but it's running real bad software. And it's locking up, and it's freezing, and, it's, and so forth. And so uh, if you think of it, uh, a person is a spirit, mind, and body, and your mind is like a super fancy computer. Uh, it's more than that, but it's at least that. And your body is like the computer case, which makes it silly for people to argue over what color the computer case is. Right? Reds are better than greens. It's like it doesn't matter what color that your computer or your iPhone is. It's what software, what apps are running on it. And so uh, the idea is we love the person. We just don't like the software program called Islam. And, and I want to make that distinction because, you know, we love everybody, but we don't love this behavioral software program called Islam. Uh, and, and so it's the teachings that are the danger. And if the, the, the person can have some, uh, some new software, <laughs> so to speak, um, that would help solve the issue. Do, do you subscribe to the, the, the belief of some people, including myself, that the Muslim faith is the only religion in the world since its founding, it's never had a significant reformation? Uh, they did almost have one. 
So when they uh, you had Arab Persians uh, conquered all of North Africa, had Spain for seven hundred years, um, had into Eastern Europe, and then had um, I'm sorry they didn't they did not have Eastern Europe, uh, but they had uh, through the Middle East and in northern you know encroaching into India. But toward the 800s and the 900s, they began to sort of settle down. They weren't uh, expansionist, uh, and they began to have scholars like Avicenna uh, and uh, um, Al-Farabi and um, uh, Averro. And they would study the Greek classics, and they would study Greek literature, and they would study art, and they'd write on astronomy and geometry and mathematics and everything. And if you were to take a snapshot of the world, you would have thought that they were going to experience the Renaissance. It was really looking good until they got a Muslim leader in Baghdad named Al-Ghazali. He's considered the second most influential person in Islam after Muhammad. And Al-Ghazali slapped down these moderates. And he got he went got went so far as to say, don't even study geometry, because if you study the Greek geometry, you're going to be tempted to read Greek philosophy, and therefore you're going to get away from Islam. So he said, don't study any sciences, just study the. And so all of a sudden, there was a Al Ghazali closed the Muslim mind, and their chance at having that reformation that you talked about was squelched. Now at the same time, Europe gets a guy named Thomas Aquinas, and he came up with this philosophy that. Truth is truth, even if a pagan stumbles across it. Sort of like eat the hay, spit out the sticks. And so he transitioned Europe from a more superstitious Middle Ages to, hey, we can read the Greek stuff. We just read, keep the good stuff and throw out the bad stuff. And so that opened Europe up to universities. And so Bologna and Milan and Paris, they would open these universities. And then when the Muslim Turks conquered Greece and the Greek scholars fled west, they, was, they came over with their Greek art, literature, and so forth, and the Western world was ready to accept all of that, and that turned into what we call the Renaissance. And then after that, the Reformation. And so, uh, so yes, uh, to answer your question, um, Islam was on the verge of a major Reformation, so to speak, under Al-Farabi Al- and Averro and Avicenna, but it was slapped down and cut short and ended by Al-Ghazali. And then Ataturk tried to so do that ideas- in Turkey, but he was, he was thrown out by a bunch of fundamentalist leaders and now Erdogan.